I'm Carol Coletta, and this is Night Cities. Making art general in cities across America is the charge of Dennis Scholl, Vice President of Arts at Knight Foundation. Dennis and his colleagues are the brains behind the Knight Arts Challenge, the enormously popular Random Acts of Culture, and Inside Out, the project that takes replicas of famous works of art in museums and puts them in unexpected public places. Dennis, the president of Knight Foundation, Alberto Ibarguen, says Knight Foundation wants to make art general in its communities. What does that mean? Well, the Knight Foundation believes that the arts can really bind a community, can really bring a community together. For most people, the only other time that really happens is during a time of crisis or sports teams, frankly. But the arts do that. They do bring people together in a collective way. So if you can find a way to take artistic activities and sprinkle them across your community, you begin to create this feeling of art as an everyday occurrence, not a special occasion, not just a big night at the ballet, not just a big night at the opera. And so, so much of our grant making is an effort to make art general in our communities. It's a way of reminding the community that culture is a very, very important part of their everyday life. It's interesting you talk about sprinkling art throughout the community and not just the big night at the ballet, and yet you uh, also fund the ballet, you fund the symphony, you fund the opera. How do you achieve a balance or what balance are you looking for between those the sprinkling and those big uh, arts institutions? Well, we're certainly well known for funding the grassroots because it's something that not a lot of other foundations have been doing. But you can't forget that there are very significant cultural organizations in every single community that we work in who get up every day and serve thousands of people on a yearly basis. So those organizations, as we saw during the financial crisis, are fragile. The bigger you were in the financial crisis, the more of a chance it was that you were in danger, that you had fragility to your financial structure. So you have to fund the significant cultural organizations in your community based upon how many people they serve, based upon the experiences that they can create for people, and based upon the fact that they are kind of the legacy institutions. But we're trying to strike that balance. So you've got your anchor arts institutions, which we fund. And when we do fund them, we try to fund them to motivate them to find new ways to engage with their audiences. And we can talk a little bit more about that. But at the same time, then we're going out and looking for the grassroots, looking for the neighborhood uh, ideas that are also culturally based. What are anchor institutions doing to attract new audiences? Because many of them, I mean, it's, it's a fin- they're under financial threat, if you will, and they're fragile, as you say, but they're also having a tough time with audience development these days. I worry about this a lot, actually, in my role as the Vice President of Arts at the Knight Foundation. I worry for two reasons. First, anchor arts institutions have generally not embraced the digital revolution. They have not found a way to meet their audience where their audience is going, which is increasingly online, and instead they continue to look for their audience where they used to be. So that's an area where we're really trying to encourage people 
uh, within those anchor arts institutions to try to find a way to connect with your audience online. Use a lot more video on your website. Do not let your website be simply, uh, here's when we're open and here's our location. Um, and they're coming along slowly. I think one of the issues is that so many of the boards of these significant institutions, they're like me, they're old and they're on the wrong side of the digital divide. So we encourage them, put a 27-year-old on your board and see what happens. What would happen if you put a couple 27-year-olds on your board who are on the right side of the digital divide and know it every day and for them social media and those kind of communications tools are just everyday occurrences. Um, so that's one thing I, I worry about and one thing we encourage them to do. Uh, the second thing is simply demography. Our country is changing rapidly and it's changing uh, its, its demography in a way that you have to find a way to introduce new Americans, new audiences to whatever your product is. And it's not something as simple as saying, well, I'm in a Hispanic neighborhood, I'll do a Hispanic play or dance a Hispanic ballet. You gotta go deeper than that. It's gotta be richer than that. It's gotta be a way that's culturally authentic to the community. So those are two things that we're really trying to encourage people. Then there's the issue of uh, the apathy uh, potential of, of the community generally. You've got to find a way to go, go find the community and bring opportunities to them. Of course, we're best known probably for our Random Acts of Culture program where we brought long-standing cultural groups to very unusual places and had them do surprise pop-up performances. So we had the opera in Macy's department store. We had the ballet in the Charlotte airport. And we had the opera in a, a Macon uh, farmer's market. Those kinds of performances where people encounter them make them think about culture differently. They make them think about culture as part of their everyday life, not, not, uh, not a special occasion. Of course, the big payoff is also that we recorded hundreds of these and put them online, and we've had something like 30 or 40 million YouTube views uh, where people can go back and experience it again and again and again. And there was a simple joy that came out of that, the experience of being surprised. But we did very traditional art there so people could remember where their first contact was with it. For many people, their first contact with classical music was Fantasia, the cartoon. Things like that where, where a lot of these arts are in our lives, but we just don't equate them to the actual things going on in our community. So that's a real important factor for us, is being able to reach people in a way that's authentic, but also a little bit of a surprise, and dare I say, a little bit of fun. Yeah. You mentioned uh, changing uh, demography. You mentioned uh, going online, at, particularly with video, and you talked about going to places that uh, people, where people are, right? Take the art to the people, so to speak. What are the most successful strategies you've seen arts institutions uh, employ in terms of bringing people to their space? So real time, real space, um, my space, right, as an arts institution. Who's innovative, who's successful? Well, I think one of the areas I'm particularly interested in and kind of proud of the work that we've done is in the free area. Free is still very good. A lot of institutions worry about giving away their product. But we've had a series of uh, relationships with operas across the night resident communities, opera companies, 
where we've gone to them and said, we'd like you to do a free performance of one of your operas this year in addition to the three or four times you are going to perform it. And I said, and we only want you to give tickets to people who aren't on your mailing list. And we want you to advertise in zip codes where they don't normally see a lot of opera advertising. And the operas have pretty much en masse pushed back and said, we know our audience, we know who they are, you know, it's not, that's not really going to work. I said, well, give it a try for us. So we'll, we'll, we'll fund it. So in Miami, they put out a call for 2,200 tickets and they got 11,000 responses. People love the opera, but as I always like to say in my meetings when I talk about the opera, the only thing more expensive than opera is war. So it's a very, very expensive thing to do and ticket prices are very high. So this was an epiphany to our Florida Grand Opera. We did it in Charlotte and Charlotte Opera said, Uh, You know, we we know our audience. They had a 1,500-seat hall. They got 7,400 requests for tickets. Now, to both of those organizations' credits, when they got that kind of response, the board of directors quickly got together and on their own funded a second free performance in order to, to soak up some of that demand that they had created. And then the second year, we went back to them and said, how about everybody that applied, whether they got a ticket or not, this year we make half price tickets available to them. And we funded that. And now, in the third year, we said, okay, everybody that applied, how about a quarter price, you know, 25% off. So we're slowly but surely moving the audience into the opera. And it takes a little bit of free thinking. It takes a little bit of willingness to experiment. And those are the kind of grantees that we're looking for in the cultural world. We're looking for people and organizations that are willing to be a little brave. And for some reason, operas have, have got that courage, which I like. When a grant doesn't work, what typically goes wrong? We make a lot of grants. You know, I'm, I'm looking now at over 5,000 grants a year and have been for the last uh, three or four years since we've gotten the contest going. The Night Cities Challenge generated over 7,000 uh, grants. But grant we, applications. Yeah, grant not, applications. Not, yeah. not grants. That's right. That's right. Um, uh, We're looking at over 5,000 grant applications a year now in the arts program at the Knight Foundation. And we make a couple hundred grants a year, I'd say maybe 250. So it's a pretty limited uh, uh, group, but they don't always work. And frankly, we would be not serving uh, our mission if they did always work, because that means you're not taking enough enough risk. As we say in snowboarding, if you're not falling, you're not trying. Um, But when we do have grants that don't go well, I find that it is generally a leadership issue. Uh, I come from the venture capital world, and we always believe that you are much better off to have a very good leader and a mediocre idea than a very good idea and a mediocre leader. Because ideas can morph and change and pivot and iterate. People kind of don't. So most of the time it's because we have underestimated the capacity or the talent that's uh, related to the idea that we're faced with. And, um, uh, you know, that's disappointing, but, um, but again, you've got to give people the chance to surprise you. Some of the greatest surprises we've had are when we've made grants to individual artists who we kind of make the grant and close our eyes and go, oh gosh, are we really doing this? And they turn out to be unbelievable entrepreneurs, but they just never had the chance. So we've had way more happy surprises than we've had disappointments, frankly. 
In addition to being a successful grant maker dentist, you're also an art collector and you've served on boards of a number of museums. What do art museums, particularly in mid-sized cities, do to make themselves successful today? I had the good fortune of being uh, a fellow up at uh, Harvard a couple of years ago in a uh, something called the Advanced Leadership Institute. And I spent most of my time up there thinking about why are our libraries in our communities so beloved? You know, try letting the city council announce they're going to cut the library budget by a dime and everybody comes out like crazy. But our museums are almost treated as like temples on the hill with, I would say disdain, but with, but with a kind of standoffishness. When I look at museums and I look at libraries, I see very, very similar functions there, but I don't see them being treated or considered by their public as the same types of institutions. And I think that's something that really troubles me about museums. Um, museums need to find a way to make their public have a better experience when they come to the museum. I believe that you can do that a number of ways. You can, going back to the digital discussion, you can have a, an opportunity for you to get up to speed about what it is you're about to see. It's like reading the libretto before you go to the opera. So that's an issue. I do see some institutions being very thoughtful about how they're letting people engage with the work. Uh, the Cleveland Museum of Art has this incredible wall that when you go in, you can take your iPad and you can attach it to the wall and download a series of objects that you can then take a tour throughout the museum and uh, learn about the object and then take the tour home with you and continue to think and ruminate and deal with it. So I think that's part of it. I think that we've got to find a way for people to deal with the art on their terms, not necessarily on the curator's terms. Secondly, I think museums, and they are beginning to do this, are not just about going to the institution to see art. There are film programs, there are dance programs, there are speakers, there are restaurants. Um, museums have to be a little more generous in what they view themselves as in order to get the public to be generous back. So I think that's a really important, important issue for them, and I think that's how some of that change is coming into place already with regard to them being more multifaceted in terms of use. And, um, but we've got to work on the art part. And that's, of course, near and dear to my heart, being an art collector. So, Yeah. You're also a real estate developer and a venture capitalist. You just mentioned that. What role does art play, can art play, in adding value to real estate? And how do you capture that value? One of the nice things about uh, being in Miami is we have really led the way in breaking down the barriers between art and commerce. We're very interested in having um, real estate developers, for example, use art to create a mood or, or a uh, attraction to, to a condominium building or something like, something like that. Um, you see at the Aventura shopping mall that they've gone and, and put 15, 20 works of art from some of the greatest artists in the world to enhance the shopping experience. Some people get it, some people don't, but they believed in it enough to do that. I think that it's important to not have art and artists be over here as the other, and that bringing them in and bringing them, uh, bringing them in as real partners early in a process 
uh, can do a lot for a community. It's not just about public art when you build a courthouse or you know, a new community center. Um, public art in private uh, buildings but are still avail- that are still available to the public adds and enhances to your community. Art doesn't have to be pinned up in a museum or in a you know, only public space. And so I think it provides a lot of opportunities for artists. I think it gives people a chance to experience art in a different way. And I think it's clear that it adds value to the projects. Otherwise, not as many people as are doing it would be doing it. Yeah, I, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up Art Place. It, Knight Foundation's a major investor. You and I both were involved in its founding. Over the three years uh, that Art Place has been in existence, and five, four years now, I guess, and of course the work you did as a developer, what do you think we've learned about creative placemaking, which seems to have sort of caught on, like, you know, and spreading like wildfire, but is still a bit mysterious, that the lessons aren't clear. You know, what do you think is clear uh, uh, in terms of creative placemaking and its role in, again, adding value to communities? Well, let me just say it here and now that um, it's clear to me that Carol Coletta made the world... uh, safe for creative placemaking so you should be very <laughs> proud of of your time there and as we always joke the time we spent building the plane while we were flying it and getting our place launched it is uh it is an extraordinary project it is uh morphing almost uh, daily into something a little different as it gets traction throughout throughout america but the one thing i take away from that experience is the idea and the acknowledgement that vibrancy is created in neighborhoods from art and artists, full stop. That, that artists have the ability to go into a neighborhood and simply create energy, vibrancy, which translates into higher uh, real estate values, is now a given. And I don't think it necessarily was a given when we began that process four years ago. I think people saw it happen in Soho and a couple of other places. We said, well, that's New York or that's San Francisco. Well, now, almost every community in America, somebody can point to an intersection where art is what's driving uh, growth. That has now uh, trickled up, I will say, to mayors. You know, Art Place has caused mayors to step back and go, boy, you know, if I invest a little bit in this burgeoning idea of vibrancy through art and artists, I'm probably going to get a pretty good return on my investment. And I can't raise taxes because nobody wants to do that. But real estate property values going up in a way automatically bring more tax revenues. So that to me is how I can tell that things have changed. I can't go anywhere without a mayor coming up to me and talking to me and saying, you know, that art thing. And, and they're no longer funding the arts as charity. They used to fund the arts because they felt like they had to or because they had, you know, powerful people supporting them who were on boards of, you know, uh, arts organizations. Now they're funding them because it's good business. And um, we haven't had that quite uh, of a seat at the table until just now. So I really feel that. I see it every day. And, um, you know, we help do that. I'm pretty proud of it. What's next for the Knight Foundation Art Portfolio? One of the things we started doing this past year, because we've now penetrated very deep into the eight-night resident communities where we work, Akron, Charlotte, Detroit, 
Macon, Miami, Philadelphia, San Jose, and St. Paul. They know who we are. We funded a lot of folks there. Is how do we get a stronger arts ecosystem in each of those communities? How do we get a situation where they aren't just looking tonight, but they're looking to each other to work together, to, to do mashups, to try collaborations. Uh, and so we've started a series of uh, regular convenings where, because we have convening power. If Knight Foundation says they're having a party, everybody comes. Um, and so we're using our convening power in all eight of those communities. We convened everybody at least once last year in all the eight night communities to get everybody together, to get them talking about what's going on, to get them to celebrate. That's one of the things arts organizations don't quite do often enough is to celebrate the collective. And that has proven to me, I'm starting to see the little green shoots of collaboration and the little green shoots of mashups that are happening. That makes me excited and happy that each of these communities um, are beginning to value arts in their community for art. Not saying, well, we're not as good as the city next door to us or up the street, but simply saying we have culture in this community, we value it, let's try to create an ecosystem and nurture it. Um, that's how I think we're going to spend our time over the next couple of years, is trying to find a way to have each of the communities nurture their ecosystems, identify those disciplines and areas of artistic excellence, and promote them. Dennis, thanks for being our guest on Night Cities. Thank you, Carol. Dennis Scholl is Vice President for Arts at Knight Foundation. You can follow us on Twitter at hashtag Knight Cities and at C. Coletta. Find out first when new conversations are posted by signing up for our newsletter at knightfoundation.org forward slash features forward slash Knight Cities. You've been listening to Night Cities. I'm Carol Coletta.